and we go through something like three, four hundred shots every week, you know, and um, we're looking like, is that reflection look good? Is that the right logo? Is that, you know, is that armor looking exactly right? Because we know that diehard fans will literally right. parse and nail us for everything. Now we're looking for, of course, water bottles and N95 masks, <laughs> you know, in the actor's pockets and that kind of stuff. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Allen Schechter, and welcome to Writer's Room Pros, a podcast of conversations with TV and film professionals where we talk about not just their work, but their approach to finding, developing, and ultimately telling stories for a living. This episode, we are excited to have Stephen Kane, showrunner of The Last Ship and now the new Halo TV series. We discuss the challenges of taking on the Halo project and its enthusiastic fan base, inside stories of working with the Navy, and how the pandemic has changed our viewing habits. And now, Stephen Kane. I, uh, I'm having this weird kind of feeling because I did my research, you know, like with some of your past interviews that you've done and, um, uh, podcasts, uh, you know, audio podcasts, uh, that you were guests on. And I'm like listening to you talk about stuff and I'm having this, this, I'm having a Notting Hill moment where it's, I think it's Hugh Grant's sister who's meeting um, Julia Roberts, who's like, you know, Anna Scott or whatever, you know, the big star. Right. And when she realizes, she goes, I just always felt that we could really be good friends. <laughs> you know? So, but listening to like a lot of the stuff you're saying, I'm going, oh my God, it's like, it's, it, he thinks the way I think oh. about stuff. And I just know we're going to be really good friends. I'm looking forward to this friendship. I'm going to come play with all your toys. Uh, that's where the friendship, I, oh, I, yeah. I have boundaries. It's mine, is mine. I guess. Yeah, yeah. As you will learn this about me, I have boundaries. Yeah. A lot of it is the, you know, like your attitude about opportunities, your, op your attitude about um, positivity, um, though I guess there are people out there who will say, but Schechter clean, thinks he's a positive person. But, um, but yes, I am a, actually a positive person. Don't listen to them because we're now friends. Um, but, um, you know, and I was just wondering, like, was this always, was this always like your attitude just like growing up, like, you know, like not looking at, um, like, for example, there is a, uh, um, a a mindset that you had that um, where you said that you don't want people coming up to you on set and saying no, right? What they should say is, uh, instead of saying no, they say yes, but it will require dot, dot, dot. I go, that's such a great life lesson. Yeah. So were you always like that or is that something that you picked up along the way? Uh, it's hard to know. I mean, I think it's, I mean, look, I spend as much time as any writer in the depths of both self-hatred and hatred of the world. Um, so don't be fooled by my positivity. But I think I just... But now you are Stephen Kane, right? Yes, I am. Okay, yeah. okay just I, I think for me, and I don't know if it's compartmentalizing or mm -hmm. it's just uh, a weird kind of singular focus, when I'm working on something that I'm passionate about, it just becomes about that. Mm -hmm. And so um, the hardest thing is to convince, convince three or 500 people to see your vision and, and run with it. And at the same time, empower them to bring their vision to it and make, and make sure we're all making the same movie. So I just want to win for the show. And so if there's a problem, let's solve it. And I also like to solve problems like quickly and, and move on and not get sort of bogged down. Sometimes it gets me frustrated because I'll try to fix things that I can't fix or, you know, in my personal life especially. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't think, I think it's just, once I sort of focus on what I want to do, um, first of all, I think it's so much fun. So I'm positive for that reason. 
and I want to have people around me who are having fun. And then when they come up to me with, here's the problem, I always say, please come to me with the problem and your pitch for the solution. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a pitch for the solution, at least tell me what the problem is that I can sort of start pitching on. And let's just be collaborative about it. And I think um, if you don't have that attitude, it just becomes much more difficult. And I think, yeah, there are people out there who just are yellers and, you know, make people unhappy. And I just feel like every time I show up on a set, I'm having a great time. Right. I, my first time I was on a set of a show that I wrote was on The Closer, or maybe it was Without a Trace, but I think The Closer was like the first really good full-time staff. And um, I saw my name in the back of the chair. And I thought, oh, this is cool, you know. <laughs> um, or when I first came to L.A. in the early 90s, and uh, I walked around studio lots, Warner Brothers and Paramount, and I thought, I can't believe I'm walking on these sound stages that growing up in New Jersey, I can only imagine. So I think it's a privilege and a gift to be able to do this job. And so, yeah, there's a lot of time where you're frustrated and people get in your way. But in fact, the actual making of the show is the easiest part for me. The hardest part is everything else in the business. Really? You know? That's so funny. It's like Jack Nicholson said. He, he acts for free. He gets $10, 15000000 million to deal with all the bullshit. Oh, yeah. And that's sort of how I feel about you know, making a show. I think it's just amazing that you think of an idea in a room, and then you, people are doing it, yeah. and you got 500 people making it happen. You yeah. know? I mean, I was on the set of Halo. We were in Hungary, a very hot day, and we were in the back lot, and we had this giant crane with, a character, with an act stuntman hanging from it, he was going to be dropped onto a big foam thing that eventually will become a ship of some kind. I can't tell you too much about right. it. Um, and we're just watching this guy get dropped constantly onto this foam thing and missing and hanging in the air and then dragging him up again and dropping him. It's very safe. But um, and I'm thinking like, we wrote in the script, he jumps off this and lands on that. Right. And now these guys are doing this. And to me, that's, it's fun, you know? It, it, it's, it is kind of magical. Um, you know, it's this idea that and you, sometimes you write stuff, you're not even thinking about it. I, I, I think I must have spoken about this in some previous podcast. But, you know, you write in your script and you go, oh, it's, you know, Stephen sits down in a blue chair. Right. And you just, it, it didn't even really matter right. to you that it was blue. But you just somehow threw sure. in a descriptor. It was a blue chair. And then, you know, three weeks later, you know, you got five people going, um, what color blue would you like his right, chair, sir? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. yeah, I've sent somebody to, you know, to the, you know, uh, Afghanistan to find the finest Afghani blue, right. you know, right. material. And it's like, whoa. Right. That's the big lesson when you're starting out in screenwriting. When you're writing for yourself, you can write whatever you want. Right. right. You want to just impress people, blow them away. You should always write big and, and be bold. But when you're writing for a show that's actually going to shoot, you can't be arbitrary. Because I would write things like she answers the door in a moo moo, and all of a sudden I'm in a meeting, and they go, "So when you say moo moo, what do you, you know, this and that?" Or I, the funny thing on on the last ship, I wanted to explain, as our guys were shooting at these bad guys, that they were not your typical bad guys, like the, like who are these guys kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They were sort of trained assassins, and so I think I said something like, um, "The enemy jumps Matrix style." away or something and all of a sudden the visual effects guy comes up to me and says all right so when you say matrix style and all of a sudden i could see his mind was going with like we have to have a room with 15 cameras right. we're talking it, bullet, time, bullet time or is it wire work and i said or? oh no no i was i was just uh just being po poetic and he's like okay that's, i just <laughs> changed the budget or one time a producer came to my office and said to me in the first season of the last ship he's like look i've tried you know i've tried i said what do you mean he goes look i we needed a naval, naval ship we got a naval ship we needed helicopters we got, but i can't i just can't get the sharks <laughs> I said, the sharks? He goes, yeah, the sharks that are circling. You know, we looked at guys doing mechanical ones. It's just, I said, 
is that still in the script? That was a joke. You know, and he, <laughs> do you actually put a joke in the script? Like they're being circled by sharks? Not on purpose. I think I said it in the room and, oh. and the writer who wrote that episode probably put it in because I said it. Right. And I didn't, I didn't take it out or, or I, I never thought it would get there or, right. you know. Um, what color blue would you like yeah. your sharks, sir? I don't, I don't, um, I don't usually put those kind of jokes in. I oftentimes will put a word in, not like out of nowhere, but I'll be thinking of something in the description and I'll use a, like a $6 word or, you know, hundred dollar word. Um, cause I like it. And I also know that sometimes someone will be like, they didn't know what that word meant. And so I just sort of do it to sort of be annoying and fun. <laughs> cause I think I was working on a project again, a long time ago and I used the word lugubrious and now <laughs> just in an outline. Right, right. And the executive said, uh, this is before like Wikipedia or yeah. dictionary online or you know, anything, Alexa, what does lugubrious anything, mean? Yeah. Anything that you had to look up, you had to actually go someplace and look it up. So we're seeing this meeting and the executive says, uh, yeah, on page seven, this word, word lugubrious. I don't think it's a word. I think you should get rid of it. I said, well, I know it is a word. And he goes, no, I, I don't think it's a word, Steve. I think you should get rid of it. You know? And so ever since then, I'm like, you know what? I don't see why we can't elevate our, our writing a little bit and just put the, a few words like that in just to right. make it colorful. Yeah. Um, but anyway, and keep that, the executives guessing, which exactly, is, which yeah. is like a you know, blood sport in and exactly. of itself. But for me, honestly, it's really, I'm just enthusiastic about doing mm-hmm. it because it's fun. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And it's hard, it's hard sometimes to find people. I mean, I've, I've told my kids, cause my daughter, I think is looking into, uh, she just finished her first, uh, professional, uh, uh, wardrobe department, uh, oh, cool. um, PA mm-hmm. gig and just loved it. And, uh, she's grown up on sets forever. Sure. But I have a total, look, you know, film people and TV people are like the nicest, the hardest working salt of the earth. Yeah, you know, they're jerks that usually reserved for, you know, showrunners. Mm-hmm. But the um, but the the crew people are just the best people. And it's such a joy to be able to find people who will share your enthusiasm. And yeah. it's so draining when you have somebody who doesn't. You know, or yeah. or catastrophizes right. the you know, hey, you know, you have your your whatever your line producer and you're saying, hey, I want to go shoot on an airplane, and they go, no, it's impossible, we just can't do it, and you know, and then it's like, then they come to you a couple hours later, and it's like, you know, I thought about it, and I think we can do it. And it's like, well, so why did you torture me right. for you know, you know? Well, people come to a project with all kinds of stuff, right? They mm-hmm. have their own pressures, their own fears. That applies to executives, applies mm-hmm. to line producers. Line producer has to get the show done on budget. And on schedule and you know the great ones will do that while also helping you make the show you want to make mm-hmm. you know and they'll say like we're gonna make this happen and I'll make it happen for you but but their initial thing is fear because this guy could be out of control on the last ship you know the first episode of every season the first two would always be a million dollars over budget mm-hmm. and I would get these calls like you know I don't know this is getting crazy and I'd say don't worry I have a plan for the fourth episode it's gonna be a bottle episode which right. for your fans is you know episode shot only on your sets only with your, your recurring cast you know as little money spent outside and you can save easily on the last ship a million dollars just like that in one episode right and the first couple seasons I was met with sort of you know skepticism because they said well we don't know you're gonna do that we haven't seen the outline for that I said well here's the plan you know and uh Eventually, when they saw that we were doing that, then they became much more comfortable. So you have to prove yourself to these people too. But they, people didn't—they weren't put on this planet to work for you. They a lot of times, if they're just pushing a dolly, sometimes they don't care what show they're pushing a dolly for. Mm-hmm. I don't want those guys on my set if I can help it. Right. But it's a—it's a job, and, and you know, for me, the greatest gift is when I see the camera operator reading the script. You know, there's a few out there that yeah. I love. Uh, Bud Kremp, for example, I love on—we had him on the last ship. 
eventually he directed an episode for us because oh, nice. he was so part of the storytelling process. Um, so the people who, who greet me with joy and enthusiasm, they become my favorite people because they're doing what right. I want to do, you know. Um, and uh, I also learned a lot from working with the Navy about the what they call the art of the possible, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I remember, again, the Navy was also skeptical. They thought we were Hollywood types. So we were going to make them look bad. And I said, no, this is a show about heroes. We're not going to sugarcoat things. We're going to show them with flaws, but we're going to show your values being tested and then, you know, overcoming all the obstacles. And, um, you know, by the last season, I said, I want to do D-Day. Mm-hmm. I want to do Saving Private. I, we started this season with uh, sort of Pearl Harbor, right. a big attack on a base, and then I want to end it with a D-Day thing. And sure enough, I got the Marines on board. Marines said, we're doing an exercise at Camp Pendleton. We went down there with like nine cameras and filmed these um, vehicles, tanks coming out of the water. Um, they're sort of amphibious tanks right, right. Um, and storming the beach. And of course, once they got to the beach, they got out and just sort of stood there because they were just doing an exercise. But we used that as our B-roll. And then we went back there six months later and shot with our actors and did this giant Saving Private Ryan type thing. We only had three and a half days or two and a half days. I think Spielberg had a little bit more to do his <laughs> thing. But it looked amazing. And you know, right. we got the bang for the buck because everyone was just super jazzed. And I think also when you show that enthusiasm and that fearlessness, even if you have that fear and you, if you mask it and just show this amount of enthusiasm, people will jump on that. You right. know? Um, and even with the Navy, I remember we had this meeting, my, one of my producers said, uh, the Navy's here, they're not happy. They, they think you're we're screwing them over on this and that, whatever. And I walked into the meeting and when I walked out, they were saying, what else can we give you? And it's because I, enlisted them in my enthusiasm and I was honest with them. I never, I never, you know, the only time I ever lie is when I was making independent films and I'd say, we'll only be here for two hours. And then 12 hours later, we're like, sorry about your window. We'll fix that. I promise. You know, (laughs) this show is brought to you by showrunner industries, makers of writers room pro for more about the app and this show, make sure to check us out at writersroompro.com and follow us on Instagram at writersroompro. Now back to the show. We were, um, on on a ship in San Diego filming season three and didn't quite have an ending for the season yet. We were still working on it. And me and my assistant and we're, a bunch of us were standing on the uh, quarter deck where you, where you, right when you get onto the ship and we're talking to the captain of the ship and we're just chatting about stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, why is the captain standing here talking to me? I'm sure he's busy with, with other things, but he's talking to me. And usually those guys will say, hi, good luck to you, have fun if you need anything, and then they leave. Mm-hmm. Turns out he was waiting for something else to happen. He goes, if you excuse me, I have to go do something now. So I said, oh, sure. Turns out they were doing a, a bonging off ceremony. Uh, one of their uh, officers was leaving the ship. Mm-hmm. I'd never witnessed one of these before. What's it called? Bonging off. Bonging? Or donging off. I think it's bonging off. It's where they ring the bells and, oh, and they, oh, oh, oh. they sort of say goodbye to you. Oh. So you can't help but feel something's happening. So you, you see these two rows of officers line up. And then out of a covered breezeway comes the officer and at first it's, they're announced by a bosun's pipe, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Right. And then, uh, uh, this person comes out and everyone's at attention and I look up and on every deck, there are, uh, uh, sailors standing at attention watching this thing. And meanwhile, my crew has like, they're carrying equipment. They're, they stop They're just looking and we're all just watching this thing, thinking what's going on. And we don't know this person. We don't know right. the story. So it just feels like you're watching a ritual and the person, uh, it's a young woman. She walks down the row of, of officers and then turns 90 degrees and salutes the captain and says, permission to go ashore for the last time. Aww. 
and I start to kind of well up with tears. I don't, and he says, permission granted. So they salute, they shake hands, and then she stands and she walks across the brow off the ship. And as she's walking, they start going hip, hip. And the whole ship goes, hooray, hip, hip, hooray. And then right as she reaches the halfway point, the captain screams or hollers, uh, don't look back. At this point, I'm literally weeping. My assistant's weeping. The grips are weeping. I'm like, that's the end of our season right there. And now it turns out she was going to Hawaii. She was fine. It was just was not like a, she was just being reassigned to like a cooler post. Right. But all that ritual and the idea of don't look back, that's biblical. It's like sort of like Sodom and Gomorrah thing. Don't look back. Yeah. It comes from that. I'm not sure why, because she turns into salt, mm-hmm. salt in the sea. All these kinds of little symbolism. It's sort of like Halo. There's all these kinds of canon, canonical Easter eggs in the Navy that have been built up over 240-some years. And uh, th- that season, we were doing the captain, you know, leaving the ship. Well, we knew, we knew he was going to cross a line morally, and he was going to have to leave. And that became the last image, was don't look back. And, and it just happened serendipitously because we were there. And that, that comes from wow. being fully immersed in the work and loving it and wanting to do it, not looking at it like a, just a job. And I think that's the key is... You can't write cynically. If you're gonna like, when I was in the closer, it was a cop show. It was I didn't create the show. James Duff did. It's a mm-hmm. brilliant show, but I learned how to be on a show and how to run a show from being on that show. And uh, again, I was not. I had no run-ins with law enforcement growing up. Um, I knew what cops. Now you are were. from New Jersey. Well, I grew up with, with the mafia. I knew a lot about that, but I didn't grow. I'm up from Brooklyn. Oh, there so, you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a lot of mafia in my neighborhood growing up, but I didn't have a lot of, you know, cop experience. Right. But got into it. You know, we had a great detective on the show who eventually retired and became a full-time producer on the show. Um, and I think if you just fully embrace it and live it, you know, then it becomes, it shows on the screen. Mm -hmm. I can segue into our, my new show, Halo. It's the same thing. They, they've built this over 20 years, this legacy and this canon that, you know, you want to tell your own story, but you want to honor it. And so anytime you can find a way to, to go back to that, and find the depth of meaning in it. Because nothing means anything unless it's got roots, right? And so the Navy obviously provided us with that, and the LAPD provides you with that, and the United Nations Space Command uh, also (laughs) provides you with that. And so I think, you know, I think you go back to your first question about enthusiasm. I think if you get enthusiastic about your project, it becomes all-consuming. You see everything through that lens. You see ideas come to you through that thing. And mm-hmm. if you have that kind of enthusiasm, suddenly you've got a crew who wants to do the same thing. If the crew knows, oh, if we do this, this, and that, that that'll sell what he's talking about, and they're part of it, you know, um, they becomes they get a little bit more meaning as opposed to right. as opposed to like, we need an office, give me some desks, you know, you kind of say, No, I want a blue chair. And why why a blue chair? Because when he was young he had a blue toy and he watched his father get murdered or something, and blue became the color of memory, whatever. Right. For you, if it means something, you can assign meaning to it. You know, it's like Storaro would assign meaning to every color that mm. he would do lighting with. You know, yellow is, the, is power, and red is this. If you have your own, even if it's your own meaning, if you can sell that vision to your crew and to your writing staff and to the network and get them all to buy in, then... You right, know. and that takes time. I mean, the last ship it took a couple seasons before we really had buy-in, where skepticism went down from the from the network about the budget, from the navy about our intentions, you know, and from our audience. Right. You know? Yeah, but it's it's great though. Again, you know, going back to that point of fi- finding people or inspiring people who share that enthusiasm. I mean, I remember on Stitches, I had my uh, my line producer, a guy named David Russell, who 
as much as I love Stitches and I loved Stitches, Russell loved the show even more. And that's what you want in, as your yeah. line producer. You want, I, a little going back to like the airplane, I, would, you know, I, I walked into his office and I was like looking a little downcast and he's like, you know, what's, what's wrong? I, got, I had this really great idea for an episode, but we can't, we can't do it. He goes, well, why not? He goes, because it takes place in an airplane. And he goes, well, give me, give me, a, give me a moment or two. Right. right? And an I go back to the writer's room and, you know, he walks in like an hour later. He goes, okay, I got you your airplane. And it's like, I was just convinced. It's like, there's no way we're shooting, you know, yeah. an episode in an airplane, you know, filled with passengers. And you know, he just, he would not, he thought it was, he liked the idea. And yeah. it was like, he just was enthusiastic. Yeah. If you enlist people, I mean, I remember going down the hall to the visual effects team and saying, I'm tired. I can't just keep doing stuff at sea where they come across a boat. I want to do something maybe like, can we shoot at one of those oil rigs off the coast of Sandy, uh, Santa Barbara, you know, um, and make it like a cool scene there. And, and, and would you be able to work with that? Mm -hmm. And he came back with a plan. We talked about doing a ship, uh, a storm at sea. We had never done a storm. It was always sunny. And I said, it's time we did a storm at sea. And we had to prepare for that for six months before the director even showed up with, you know, how do we make the, the set water tight, you know, so that we could right. splash water around. How do we deal with um, the visual effects of seeing a ship in a storm? How do we pay for that? So by the time we were shooting it, we had done six months of prep and everyone was so on board. Right. And same thing with Halo, like as big as our budget was, it was never big enough to do what our imaginations wanted. So, you know, you would have these amazingly brilliant artists coming together and figuring out ways to solve your problems. And look, I did for nine episodes, I think I did 270 drafts. Wow. Of, of know, all of them. Of all of them. So right. like, you know, something like, 30, 40, depending on the episode, some as few as 15, 10, some as many as probably 40, not full rewrites, but changes. You lost this location. This, this has to change. This has to right. make more sense. How big was your writing staff for Halo? Uh, it was really, it was mostly just me. And then when I first got the job, actually, when I first got the job, there was a team that had been working for some time on scripts. Well, Halo apparently was in development hell for almost a decade. Yeah. In fact, when I was on the last ship, I remember hearing about friends of mine who were working on Halo and I'm thinking, oh, that sounds cool. That, that might be a cool job. So yes, they had a lot of uh, false starts or learning experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually they found Kyle Killen and he um, created a great shape, got some writers together and created some really good, I mean, literally carved out of the huge and horizontally wide um, canon of Halo carved a story out of it, you know, and uh, they were gung-ho. And then he didn't want to continue. He didn't want to go to Hungary, and he had young children and, and just wasn't interested in living in Hungary. Right. And so I came on board, and it was sort of, can you just run production in Hungary and maybe do some production rewrites? And then as we started going, it became, actually, we need to keep developing the show. And so Kyle was great. We worked together for a bit, and then he stepped away, and I continued. And so we ended up developing the show together. Um, so had he already kind of broken the, the back of like, how do we take this canon, you know, the, this 20 year? Yeah, he did so much right, heavy right. lifting. He, he basically said, you know, this is what I think the story should be for the season. Right. And then I took that and said, okay, let's develop that and, and flesh it out. And, you know, they either ran out of time or just didn't get a chance to sort of make every episode fit with every episode that comes mm -hmm. after. There was, you know, clearly like first drafts of different episodes where, this doesn't even happen anymore in this episode. So, and then, you know, I think 
343 and, and Showtime and Amblin also, they were all struggling with what they wanted the show to be or, or they knew it and they just hadn't gotten their point across. So it became an opportunity for everyone to sort of reevaluate what we have and so it was hard for me. Exactly. I was what they, what, what they, you know, they, when you say reevaluating, reevaluating what they wanted the show to be, do you mean like just tonally, or like out of all of this, we want this story? Yeah, it, it, I think it's all those things. Okay. I think it, sometimes it was like, yeah, that scene's always been in there, but we never liked it, mm -hmm. or we never really cracked this moment, but you know, we right. were working on it, or me coming in saying, well, what if we do this? And they go, oh, that's interesting. And I, I think what happened was. I actually came in, and so I got two writers for three weeks. Mm -hmm. And there were writers I trusted. I worked with Katie Swain and Mark Malone. I worked with them on, on um, Last Ship, mm -hmm. and because I had like literally no time, I was like, "You're given, you're going to go to Hungary in about a month, so you better get going." So I got two writers. We got a temporary writers' room and, and an assistant, and um, just started taking what was there, pulling out what we thought didn't work, reshaping it, coming, bringing in new ideas. And then pitching it back and then saying, okay, great, let's do that. You're off to Hungary. And then the first drafts that came in, everyone got a little bit anxious because for two years they've been doing something else. And now here I am, they don't know me very well, and I'm right. coming in with a brand new idea. And so there was a little pushback, so I kind of went back and reinstated some stuff. And then when we got to the table read a few months later, they said, wait, why don't we do something else? I said, well, that's what I talked about doing a few months ago. Let's go back to that. Sure. And so it became a sort of feedback loop. And then from that point on, it became all of us discovering the show together. Right. You know, and obviously 343 and Microsoft have a huge investment emotionally and canonically in making this thing right. And so it was like it was with the Navy. It was uh, it was a sort of feedback loop of like, can I push the envelope here? Can I try this? And what was great was they were really open to us expanding on canon, the, you know, moving away from the timeline of the game to mm -hmm. create a new thing for the show. Um, at the same time, they were great to answering questions for me so, so I could put in all the Easter eggs and that kind of stuff. Right. And so it became like I got a leg up, you know, from the previous writing team. I didn't start from complete scratch, but at the same time, in some ways it was more challenging because I had sort of like, here's your house, the foundation we like, just redo the kitchen. Right. And you finish the kitchen and they go, well, now that the living room looks really weird, doesn't it? Yeah, let me redo that. But don't forget, there's a retaining wall here. You know, so you're sort of, or I like to use the metaphor of, of building train tracks for the train as the train's going 100 miles an hour. You're sort of trying to build in front <laughs> of it. I haven't heard that before. I like and, that. And you're sort of, oh, there's a mountain ahead. we got to drill a tunnel at the same time because production was going to happen. So as a result, it became, you know, a 70-hour-a-week job, especially when I was in Hungary and I didn't have my writers anymore. The writers would come and go for a week or two mm -hmm. or a month, sometimes a month to help me do prep. But I did every single rewrite after that. So I was literally... You know, writing on set and then at night on calls. I was actually looking it up, like you know, on the uh, like top two hundred franchises. Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember what number it was. It was in the thirties, I think, in franchises. You are, I think, just you're either just like Halo is either just behind or just ahead of the DC extended universe in terms of franchise value. Wow. Yeah. Well, I can tell you how surprising it is to find out how many people are interested in Halo or know Halo is when you mention it. Like I was on a plane back from Seattle when I first went up to Seattle to meet the people at 343 mm -hmm. and go to the, they have a boot camp where you learn everything Halo. And it's, it's amazingly very little about the actual gameplay and more about the canon and the, and the core values, um, you know, creating awe and wonder and hope and all that stuff. 
anyway, so I'm, I'm flying back from Seattle, and the guy next to me, we're chatting up, you know, and uh, I said, oh, yeah, I was just up. I'm doing this um, adaptation of a game called Halo. The guy in front of me takes off his headphones and says, Master Chief Halo? You know, and <laughs> my wife went to the doctor once, and she mentioned uh, her husband's going out of town to do this thing. Oh, what's it about? Halo. He was a huge fan. So um, it's in the culture for sure. And uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to not think about the immense pressure from the hardcore fan base who are going to literally freeze frame every shot to make sure right. we haven't screwed something up. In fact, we were on a one of our weekly four-hour, three, four-hour uh, visual effects uh, calls yesterday. We're, we're all now, of course, working from home, but we have our monitors up. And we're talking, it's me and the director in London and the post-production in Canada and the people in Microsoft. And we go through something like three, 400 shots every week, you know, and um, we're looking like, is that reflection look good? Is that the right logo? Is that, you know, is that armor looking exactly right? Because we know that diehard fans will literally right. parse and nail us for everything. Now we're looking for, of course, water bottles and N95 masks, <laughs> you know, in the actor's pockets and that kind of stuff. All right. But, um... Yeah, the the. I never think about the enorm enormity of the budget or the enormity of the pressure because I, I really think when you're making your show, whether you're making a two-person talkie show or five hundred-person, you know, rock opera, whatever you want, you know, you know, military thing, you still have the same challenges, which is telling your story. Right. So it's only when people say, "Gee, that's a big budget," that I start going, "Oh wow, that that is kind of right." Nervous. And you don't want to make. I mean, you know, nobody sets out to make something crappy or, oh, well, because the budget on this is right. so much less than the budget on my last one, I'm going to take this a little that much, it's, that percentage less yeah, seriously. Yeah. I would say, it, I was going to say it's just as hard to make uh, a smaller show as it is a bigger show. And that's true in terms of content, drama, character, emotion, mm -hmm. engagement. What makes the bigger show more challenging is that it's that plus, all right, how do we get the equipment to this distant, right. you know, quarry in the middle of Hungary and get these shots to look right and get the armor to look right. And what's the, you know, blue screen and the visual effects and the, the, the cost and feeding a thousand people, all that stuff becomes right. much more of a, of a to do. Well, but, yeah, it's a, it's a bigger army yeah, that, you you're, that you're moving team. around. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but yeah, but arguably you could say like a, making a smaller show is it's not that it's more difficult because I've worked on small shows. I've worked on big shows. So it's not that a small show is more difficult, it's more challenging because you have to be more resourceful. Right. It's not like, well, you know, I, I, I had a friend who famously would say, well, any problem that goes away when you throw money at it is not really a problem. Right. Right. So on a bigger show, there's at least a little more wiggle room to throw some money at the problem to make right. it go away. On a smaller show, it's like, nope. Yeah. But it's the same thing. If you're, if you're a, uh, a multimillionaire, mm -hmm. But you have seven houses and a huge payroll. Suddenly, to make your monthly budget, you have all this pressure to keep up making that money. Right. And if you have, so you have the same pressure as the person who's living on a fixed income in a smaller place because you've spent, right. you know. I know. So uh, for us, even having the money we had on Halo, we still hit walls where we're like, well, we can't afford to do that, mm -hmm. you know, or that we don't have time to do that, or that's just impossible to do. So right, right, right. Yeah, the, kind the, of, you know, right, the logistic yeah. and But I come out of, of I came out of independent film, and mm -hmm. uh, for a number of years I made shorts and I made a feature and, you know, no money, no time. And so what that trains you to do is also to think on the fly, even at the biggest right. level. So you're, you know, you're making this big show and suddenly you realize all these things have come up 
and you go back to that part of your brain and go, okay, you know, we can do this in one shot. If we do this, this, and that, we can fake this, we can cheat that. And, right. you know, you've done the same thing, but even with a bigger budget. Right. And I think everyone does. I mean, I've heard stories about yeah, the biggest yeah. people do that. Oh, so. yeah. I mean, I was uh, running a show or co-running a show up in Canada. And I think our budget, I think for the first year was like, it was a half hour live action uh, high school comedy with, with no locations. It was right. all like in some studio down by the water in, right. in Toronto. And, um, and I think the budget first year was like $500,000 an episode, yeah. <laughs> you know, which, yeah, which, which is not much. And then season two, they're like, okay, could you do it for three fifty an episode? You're so successful. We're going to give you yeah, less yeah. money. Yeah. Like, okay. So we now we figured it out. And then season three, how's two fifty an episode feel? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Okay. Like torture, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, yeah, but you figure out a way to do it. So I think it was the showrunner from uh, Sons of Anarchy, and he said that, he said, sh being a showrunner is like writing a novel while painting a portrait while doing your taxes. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> makes sense. It made, it made it sound a lot harder than I felt it was, uh, but again, yeah. it's like, uh, you know, I've also had bad experiences, yeah. you know, where it's like... Well, when I was um, still in The Closer... I enlisted and got accepted into the showrunners training program, mm -hmm. which for your viewers was is it Jeff Melvoin's Jeff Melvoin's thing. It's a, the writers guild teamed together mm -hmm. with the studios and said, look, you got these writers who a lot of times are introverts who chose to be writers. so They can be alone in a room and they sell a show and suddenly you're giving them 10, 15, hundred, 300 million dollars. And they're in charge of that. And they're also managing people. You might want to give them some preparation, right? And it's in your best interest, and it's in the best interest of the mm -hmm. writer to not lose that ability, because right. if they take that away from you, then you know you can't do what you do. So they developed this wonderful program, showrunners training program, where um, essentially people like us now would go in and share their experiences. So you know, big showrunners, new showrunners, also casting would come in and visual effects and different mm -hmm. departments and teach everyone sort of all how a show works. And it was funny because the first showrunner came in, or maybe Jeff Melvoin himself said, it's sort of like showrunning is sort of like being a quarterback of a fo football team. you got to just drive the f team downfield. And then halfway through the season, the metaphor became, it's sort of like you're in, at war and you're leading your <laughs> troops and you have to take that hill. And then the last thing was someone said, it's sort of like being on a submarine that has lost all power and is sinking and slowly approaching <laughs> crush depth. And that's horrible. Yeah. So I raised my hand and I said, let me ask you a question. Cause there was all these showrunners up on the panel too. And they all looked bleary eyed and just like, Oh man, exhausted. And, uh, and they said, I said, so why would I want to do this job? And they all go, Oh no, no, it's great. It's great. It's great. And it's sort of like when you have a newborn, yeah. you're like, Oh my God, I haven't slept in days. And, but no, oh, I love it. I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah. And that's sort of what it's like. You are literally, um, on fire, you know, for, the time it takes to make the show and then it's over, you know, or it's like if you're running down a hill and the sand is giving out underneath you and you have to just keep running because if you stop running, you'll slip and fall. So you just keep running and hope that at the end you can make a graceful right. end to it. And uh, that's why it's hard to sort of commit to doing one of those shows until unless you have that passion we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So for The Last Ship, for Halo, um, for most everything I've done, really, I've been fortunate. Um, it becomes sort of part of who I am. And so I don't think about it as work anymore. I think about it as part right. of the fun. And so that that, that adrenaline yeah. becomes what feeds you. You yeah. know, uh, at, the, at the same time, uh, I'm not going to go back and do if there's a season two. I'm only going to consult on season two of Halo because okay. 
because I, 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 I still have kids who I want to see right like, before they graduate high school. <laughs> and uh, I can't do it. How many there. months were you in Hungary for? I was in Hungary for almost two years. Wow. Yeah, on and off. Um, yeah, but still. But, but I mean, two years of actual time there split up over three years. Um, so How many seasons did you do? Already? Just one. Just that. Wow. Well, you know, the pandemic obviously right. knocked us down for like six months. Okay. Um, yeah, we started, it was actually, it was March 19th of 2019. I flew up to Seattle for my okay. first boot camp and got into Hungary in late June of 19. Started filming in, I think, November, maybe. We were doing great, and then pandemic hit, and then right. we had to come back the following September, October, and yeah. And we, wow. we wrapped in July of 2021, yeah. and now we're doing visual effects, and we're airing March on uh, Paramount Plus. Hi, I'm Sally Richardson Whitfield, and I am the executive producer of The Gilded Age and one of the directors. And you are listening to the Writers Room Pros podcast. So it's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously we're we're recording this in the hopefully the waning weeks of the Omicron uh, uh, surge. I guess yeah. you want to call, yeah. call it. So, um, but uh, but last ship. <laughs> the you know pandemic you know defining quality of it right? that's that's what you know that was the inciting incident for there being a last ship yeah right yeah i mean was it was it kind of weird in hindsight because the last ship had already wrapped before covid yeah. was, was a thing yeah but i got a lot of emails from people saying you know you saw it yeah. coming yeah i mean because it's interesting like I, I've, I've watched um rewatched um uh, um, 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 what was the Soderbergh movie Outbreak? Contagion. Contagion. Thank you. Outbreak was a different one. Yeah. Uh, Contagion. It was great. And, you, and you go, yeah, it was great. And you go, oh my god. You know, it's like there, there really was a lot of accuracy to here's what happens at you know with hoarding and yeah. you know you know people arming themselves yeah. and somebody has some experimental mm-hmm. uh, cure that may or may not work and like it's trying to be suppressed by the you know by the authorities. Yeah. I mean, if you look, and I apologize for not knowing the uh, pandemic storyline all that well um, from last ship because it was not a show that my wife would watch, and that's where we yeah. determine our sure. TV watching. Um, but it is a show. I, I actually it's, it's exactly like my kind of show. So I yeah, I'm looking forward to when I'm in the uh, Hollywood home for the aged, and I have all that free time catching up on it. Yeah. That and Game of Thrones. There you go. Um, but, like, looking back on it, yeah. uh, like, how much of the, like, the pandemic stuff do you feel, now that we actually have lived through two years of, here's what, you know, here's yeah. your brain on pandemic. Yeah. Like, wh- how much of it did you get right? Um, well, first of all, you know, when I did The Last Ship, uh, I, I, my theory was right what you're afraid of. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was afraid of, was pandemics. Really? I had done... To make extra money while I was starting off as a screenwriter, mm-hmm. I did a lot of videos for some PR, but a lot of them for universities like USC, where I had gone to school, mm-hmm. for the cancer hospital, for the engineering school. And um, these are the kind of videos that would either be used for fundraising or to showcase some new department. So I, as a result, I met all these interesting engineers, and I met these people who were working on the weaponization or protection against mitigation of weaponization of viruses, oh. avian flu. And just viruses always scared me. So when I did the last ship, I said, let's make it about a virus. And I called up a bunch, bunch of virologists, cold called, and eventually got a few of them on the payroll. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said to them, this is my story. And they said, oh, that's our worst nightmare, that one of these things gets out and that it does this. So we were, we thought, being a little hyperbolic with the amount of deaths, of course. Um, but I think but you got, killed off 
like 80% of the time. Yeah. 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 But I think what we we (laughs) got, we got a lot right. Let's put it that way. But one thing we didn't and didn't do enough of in the end and didn't anticipate was the, we dealt with it, but not, and it was part of a season, but I think we could have done more uh, looking back is the, the alternate hysteria that comes up, the sort of conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. the the anti-masker or the anti-vaxxer or just that sort of mentality. So we had a thing in the third season, I think it was the third season, yeah, where um, there's a whole bunch of people. Well, we did one thing, which was the people who were naturally immune felt special and they had they had survived this thing where their neighbors didn't. So imagine you're walking around, your family's dead, your friends are dead, and somehow you're alive. Mm-hmm. You're sitting there with survival guilt, you're right. freaking out, and you're feeling terribly. And then someone comes to you and says, no, 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 no. You have to understand, you were chosen. This means something. And a cult kind of forms around the, the immune. Right. It picks up these religious overtones. Right. And then suddenly people come around with a vaccine, and now everyone's immune. And I was thinking, I was my kids were little, I was reading them The Sneetches by Dr. Seuss. Yeah. If I have a star on my belly and you don't have a star, then I'm special. But if you can get a star, then neither one of us is special. Right. We're like syndrome from... Yeah, I was just going to say, it's if syndrome. No one's special, then, if everyone's special, then no one's special, right? right? So it became this battle between the immunes and the vaccinated. But there's also this sub-story we dealt with. And again, I, at the time, I was only half-hearted about it because I didn't think it, was, it would actually happen, where people started inventing these things where like the government started the, the pandemic... And there's fake cures out there, and the sort of just that that aspect of it. I don't think I got as I didn't anticipate. Uh-huh. Um, I did anticipate a lot of this sort of supply chain stuff and government breakdown. Um, and one thing I would have liked to have done more, but we did a little bit of, was after the pandemic abated and that they had bigger problems on the show. Um, there's a sequence in Vietnam where they go to deliver the cure, and they go to a nightclub for a party, and it's the first time people can get together. And just be together without masks, and and yeah. it was really a lovely thing, and that's what I'm hoping, looking forward to in our own pandemic, which is you know people were sort of like kissing at the, on the dance floor and just being intimate, and I think that was kind of a, a unique, interesting thing. And one of the things we did was I talked to the composer, uh, Jimmy Levine and, and James Dooley. Uh, I said to them, you know, I, w- I want to take the song "Ring Around the Rosy," which was a pandemic song, yeah, yeah, um, or a plague song. And I want to find a way to put it into the show. And I kind of did use use GarageBand and created like a techno mix version of it. Right. But they were they found an even cooler way. They made it like almost like a weird kind of ballad that this woman's singing right. um, as as background to a scene. So the idea of like um, embracing the pandemic of it all and 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 uh, and dealing dealing with that. But yeah, when the pandemic and then during this making of the show, Ebola became a big scare. Um, Wait, oh, yeah, it was like I guess. 2014. Yeah. And it was a scare for us because we, all we were thinking about was pandemics. Right. But it was a, a couple cases. A woman came to America and right. she had it, you know. And so we got worried about that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was always a little bit paranoid. So when we were in Hungary and we're watching the news and we're like, oh, it's just in northern Italy, maybe a little bit in Austria. I said, guys, we're going to be going home soon. <laughs> um, and my wife, uh, I called her. I said, you know, uh, don't go crazy. But you might want to stock up with some groceries because I think this is going to get bad before it gets good. And next thing you know, we were home. And, you know, so and um, yeah, we got a lot right, I guess, is the point. Well, you, I mean, because, you know, going back to right what you fear and being afraid of pandemics, like when this happened, was this kind of like 
you know, oh my God, you know, like, I know exactly how this is going to play out. You know, 80% yeah. are going to die. We're all going to be on a ship. Like, did you start going to like that, that weird, dark, creative place rather than eh, yeah. the science? I think when it really hits you, you sort of can't let yourself go there. Right. Because you'll fall apart. Right. And also, yeah, I, I talked to the virologists that I've worked with. In fact, I talked to one of them in like April of 2020. 20. Right. And I said, what do you think is going on? And she was at her house, you know, and she said, I think everyone should stay home as long as they can to give the hospitals a chance to catch up. Oh, okay. We'll probably all catch it eventually. Um, she said, there's a lot of progress on mRNA vaccines, and by the fall, we should have something. You know, so she kind of talked me through what is actually happening. Um, and I think uh, my concerns are, are not about, like, global death. They're just about getting ourselves back together. I know. Get, getting us you know, so we can go back to normal life, having a writer's room in person. Still using Writer's Room Pro. Thank you. Using Thank it, you for that. <laughs> but using it in a writer's room, you can be around people and just, you know, have an idea at the bathroom or at the at the snack area or, you know, elevator. Um, but, yeah, my friends keep telling me if I should write a show that where everything's great and everyone's happy because I keep writing stuff that comes true. In, like, 1995, or, 1995 I, wrote, I wrote a feature script about a bombing at the Atlanta Olympics. And mine was much bigger, of course. Right. But a year later... There was a bombing at the Atlanta Olympics. So, like, these kind of things are, I think, in the air. Right. Um, so, yeah, my friends want me to write, you know, happy stories where everyone just falls in love. And Well, it's interesting. I mean, could do you think uh, a show like Last Ship could get made today? Uh, For a bunch I, of reasons. But... I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I Why? think I think that... Um, I think it's too close to it. You know, uh -huh. if you... It, it's. I mean, there will be shows, and there'll be good shows, where people actually deal with this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and it could be shows, I mean, I think like Don't Look Up, for example, is a way of dealing with some of the stuff we're dealing with about science denial or whatever in a different way. But I think, um, and it could just be people's knee jerk, but I think an executive would probably say, who wants to, we're living right. through a pandemic. Why would I want to watch a pandemic? Read some analysis of, of the show Ted Lasso saying like, why is Ted Lasso such a big hit now? You know, because it's, it's kind of such an innocuous show. But then, because it's it's like the antidote for everybody feeling hopeless. Exactly. Right? In fact, I watched Ted Lasso on my iPad on the plane back to Hungary um, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I, I went back for an 11 or 12 week stint where I couldn't see my family, right. except for on FaceTime. I couldn't go home. Like usually I would try to get home every six weeks or they would fly out and visit uh, after eight weeks. But here it was like three months. I wasn't going to see my family. I was going to the office in a mask in the van, in a mask at the office. A lot of times couldn't even go to meetings. So I was in Hungary, but taking meetings from my office, you know, right. even sitting alone in my office, I would have the police come by and say, put on your mask. No, I mean, our police. Yeah, yeah, come, yeah, yeah. Like the mask. COVID monitors, um, what are they called? And thank God, because we, mm -hmm. we had a very safe set as a result. But it was very lonely and very kind of depressing. And of course, it became winter and dark and, and cold. And, and then there was a, a, a curfew. So you couldn't even leave your apartment after like 8 p.m. Oh, my gosh. So Ted Lasso comes on. And I'm thinking, isn't this just like Major League where the, yeah. she wants to tank the team? And this guy's a little too much. And him being a little too much became the fun of it, right? And so it became uh, sort of a, a salve, you know, a heartwarming thing to watch during the darkness of the pandemic. And I think when times are good, then you can anticipate the worst, mm -hmm. right? So, in, you know, we, it wasn't like things were perfect in 20. 12, but right. it was relatively peaceful. You know, we ongoing wars, but people were sort of not thinking about them. But Walking Dead, 
last ship, things like that about pandemics or zombie apocalypses. They were sort of the world of, of make believe, you know. Yeah. But when it becomes real, I think it becomes, you know, depressing. Although, as you said, the last ship was ultimately very hopeful. But I think but you had to get yeah to it. Yeah, I think if you ask someone like, there's sometimes there's some shows um, that are just really great, but they're heavy about personal relationships or about problems in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And people are like, I've had problems in my life all day. I just want to get away for it, you know. From right, it. Stephen. Thank you so much for coming in. This was yeah. absolutely delightful. I knew we were going to be best friends. We're I was friends right. For life. Once again, I was right. Yes. Okay. And you're like, I don't think I'm going to like Jeff. And I'm like, you were wrong. No, I was warned about you. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, but uh, you've, no, you've read the articles. So yeah. No, this is. Fine. I appreciate very much the opportunity to to have a conversation in person with anybody. Frankly, after, <laughs> at this point, <laughs> at this point, I literally have not left the house in, in months. But. Um, but no, I really enjoy talking about the craft of the, the business of it because, like, you can talk about how to write a scene and how to get out of a mm. scene and how to develop character and a lot of that. It's like you know anything else. You play the piano. You have to first learn do re mi, and then pretty soon keep working at it. You're playing you know full pieces. That's different than what we're talking about, which is also just the spirit of of how right. it is to be in a medium that's so collaborative and trying to find a way to make it fun and like. Like I said, I, I was driving in Hungary in, in a van back and forth to the studio in the dead of winter during COVID, and I made fun of it. I made fun out of it. I had an assistant who was wonderful who I would work on my Hungarian at night and then be in the, and just drive him crazy with questions, grammar questions on the van back right. and forth or telling jokes or telling funny stories. My assistant said he waited until the fifth time I told a story to tell me that I told him that story before. Wait, you're telling, wait, did you were telling it in Hungarian or? Not, I didn't get, oh, to, that, okay, I didn't okay. get to that level. But um, but it would be funny. I'd be like, oh, that reminds me of a story. And he'd nod. And I'm like, I told you the story before, didn't I? He's like, five times. <laughs> um, in fact, when my kids and wife did visit, um, he'd be like, he told me the story about this. He told me the story about that. You know, Or one time we were filming um, at a Boy Scout camp in the middle of nowhere, but it was attached to a zoo. But it was the kind of zoo that just had local animals in it. It's almost like they grabbed possum and just threw it in a cage and said this is a hungarian possum so it had like you know maybe some foxes and then, right. but it had some birds and i guess i was talking to the birds i don't even know i was doing it we were filming over there i just yeah. wandered off to the and so my assistant says to my other to my script coordinator have you ever been to the zoo with steve he talks to the animals and i was like i do he's like yeah he had video of me going like and i think that that's what keeps me sane, honestly, is just having fun, making everything fun. Don't take it too seriously. There's everyone, this town is full of egos and big shots and people who think they have to front. I think my hardest thing is sometimes I feel like I don't, I'm not intimidating enough when I'm the boss. Mm-hmm. I always say, like, I should put my foot down this time and really be, and the people just laugh. Right. But I try to win people over with enthusiasm as opposed to making it like a command out of it because I think that people work better when they're engaged and part of the team than mm-hmm. when they're just yelled at you know anyway for sure it's fun steve thank you so much thanks man. for having me can i keep this mug absolutely we do we do we, we give away swag all right i you're a new new industry so i don't want to take away from your no no no, no it's okay i got a box of them okay <laughs> thanks for having me thanks for coming all right